All right, we're going to begin now with, with, with part two. Uh, Bob was asking some very important questions in between. You know, we, we referred to things like the undivided church. In one sense, you can make the argument, there has never been an undivided church. Paul is writing most of the New Testament because there are divisions within the church. Okay, And yet, in another sense, looking uh, from, uh, from a different point of view, we can see the unity of the church in every age of the church. And so, um, often it's easier to see, in hindsight, what emerges as the truth than to see it when you're in the thick of it, so, so to speak. But one thing I, I was sharing with, with, with Bob, because it was a good question, is to remember that these are guiding principles. Remember the guiding light? Uh, the, the soap opera, these are guiding principles. And so the early church fathers and the, even the councils, even the creeds, were never meant to be exhaustive or definitive in an absolute sense. They were meant to establish parameters within the realm of mystery. So there was a, they created a ballroom in which you could dance. Okay? The only thing they wanted was for you not to go out into the hallway. You had to stay within the ballroom, okay? So, for example, can we fully comprehend how the person of Jesus can be both fully God and fully human, apart from sin? No, we cannot. Yet, these definitions establish parameters within the mystery of the Incarnation. And we are free to emphasize to greater or lesser degrees certain aspects, to uh, articulate anew, uh, and to dance within the realm of mystery, and to bask in it, and to enjoy it. What we cannot do is step outside those boundaries and emphasize uh, one nature, his divinity at the expense of his humanity, or his humanity at the expense of his divinity, or to merge them, or to divide them where you lose the oneness of his person. So remember that the Vincentian canon is not, boom, black and white. It's meant to establish guiding principles for us to discern truth from falsehood. Okay? If you put it to every test in the world, okay, I'll give you an example. Um, I hope he doesn't hear these tapes, even though I won't use his name. Uh, there was a friend of mine. We were good friends for a while. Sadly, we, that has uh, fallen away. But we, we spent July 4th with them uh, once, and we were on a beach up in Wells, uh, Wells Beach in Maine. We're on the beach, and I said, uh, look at the color blue in the ocean today. Isn't it just beautiful? And he said, I, no, no, worse than that. He said, I can't comment on, on, uh, on what you perceive because our eyes will not register the exact same blue. So, I mean, it, it, and he, so we went on and on that there's no, he went on and on that there's no way for us to ever determine that what I'm seeing is what he's seeing. Until finally his wife, who is a doctor, I said, what if we did an eye transplant and did a comparison? And she agreed with me that then it may be possible. But he was adamant. So yes, you, you can take that, that approach and, and, and get to the point where, okay, Vincent doesn't work. Okay? But the early church was never trying to be exhaustive or definitive in an absolute way, but to establish parameters within the realm of mystery. Okay? In other words, does the church say that no books outside of Scripture have any level of inspiration by God? No. They say these books do, and you can't raise any other book to the same level as these. Okay, but it doesn't say these are inspired and everything else is crap. Okay, 
There's a lot of it out there. Nothing that I've written. But it's not, you're right. Um, so do you see what I, what I mean? Okay, so it's meant to establish. It's a guiding principle. Um, and remember that Vincent's also talking about primary matters of church. He's not talking over should we use the 1940 hymnal or the 1982 hymnal. He's not talking whether or not we use the liturgical colors from the serum use or what has emerged in the contemporary church. Okay, He's talking about things like the Trinity, uh, the divinity of Jesus, the incarnation, the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, things that are of the first matter. Does that make sense to people? Okay, so uh, a guiding principle. By the way, it is a lovely shade of blue. Okay. Um, it sounds like an awful <laughs> He was just very technical. And, um, but, you know, those are the kind of people that can't enjoy Christmas because they say, you know, look, there's no way that this child can at one time be dependent upon his mother and foster father for love, protection, nourishment, nurture, and simultaneously be sustaining the whole universe and be the one through whom they came into being. And there's no way that can... How can those both happen? If Jesus is God, how can he ever enter into the depths of our despair and feel separation from God when he can never be separated from his Father or the Holy Spirit. You know, Calvin said this in one sense, that the, well, or Calvinists, that Jesus couldn't possibly be in the Eucharist on the altar because in his body and blood, because why? He's at the right hand of God. He's been ascended. So, you know, you can't be in two places at one time. Yeah. <laughs> Come on! <laughs> you know? So, that's, so these are actually very good questions because we have to remember that, there, that Vincent is establishing... That hurt, actually. Vincent is, <laughs> Vincent is establishing... Guide, thank you. Guiding principles. Yeah, it's all that space between my head. I just jarred around my brain, so... Oh, okay, well, okay, um, okay, so we're now going to, uh, we, we have less than an hour, so we're now going to move to um, this, what I call the sacramental grace of Holy Scripture. This is very important to those of you who are listening by recording. Um, I was brought up uh, in the Roman Catholic Church, I was brought up Scripture was very important in my household. Okay, whether you think that's normative in the Roman Church experience or not, it was in my household. We read the Scripture um, almost daily. I'd read it with my mom and my dad. We would read it to know about God, to know about Jesus as God, to know about His birth, His death, His resurrection, His miracles, the Church to learn about the sacraments, to learn what is right and what is wrong. Scripture was very, very important. Okay, uh, And often, if I was sad or hurting as a teenager, my father would say, let's go pray or let's read the Bible together. My mother would do the same thing. I can remember being smaller, get into bed, we'd open up the Bible and read read together and, and that kind of thing. Um. So the Bible was very, very important. Then what happened was around 1991, maybe even a little bit before that, but there was kind of a, it started to really become stronger in 1991. I started hanging out with these crazy uh, Christians called evangelicals, okay? And they really seemed to, to have something beyond what, what I understood. I mean... I believe that the Bible was God's word. You read it to know about God, about Jesus, about his mother. <laughs> uh, you read it to know right from wrong, about the life of Jesus, the flood and all of that. But they seemed to believe that there was a power in God's word. That if one truly opened their heart 
and ask God to move with his spirit in their heart as they read his word, that there was a power in God's word to draw them into the life of Christ. There was a power to save. There was a power to convert the heart. There was a power to redeem lives. There was a power to help you overcome temptation. There was a power to deliver you from sin. And so I started to understand that even though I had a very high view of Holy Scripture as a Roman Catholic, that there was something different about these evangelicals and what they believed about Scripture. Uh, and I was trying for a while to kind of get my mind and my heart wrapped around what it was. And then one day it dawned on me, although they never would have used this terminology, they had a sacramental view of the Scripture. They believed that God communicated His presence, His grace, His love, His healing, His forgiveness, His truth, His power, His joy through the Word. So even though they wouldn't use that terminology, I was able, it was like a light switch going on. The Bible for them is sacramental. And it helped bring me to a whole new level of my understanding of God's Word. And then I started reviewing even more thoroughly what the early church fathers said about Holy Scripture. And I found that the early fathers who were, you know, Catholic, right? Because in the early church, everyone was Catholic except for one person. Who was that? John, the Baptist. Uh, <laughs> is cousin Mel the Methodist? Do you have any? All right, so anyway. Uh, slowly sinking in and causing pain as it does. Yes. So that these people had a very sacramental view of Scripture. They also believed in anamnesis when it came to God's Word. And that this is why there was even a difference between reading Scripture, which can also be very powerful, but the proclamation of the Word within the gathering of the body of Christ, within the Eucharist. Okay? And so they understood anamnesis not only attached to the body and blood of Jesus, but they understood anamnesis as attached to the Word of God. And, I, and it opened a whole new door that the Holy Scripture as God's Word was living and powerful and present for me today. It wasn't simply talking about, about old times. And then I found out that the Jews believed in anamnesis. That when they read the, the Seder meal, the story, they didn't believe they were hearing something about their ancestors. They believed that they were participating in the Passover. Right? And so this whole concept that, that God's word is sacramental. And then I realized that every one of the sacraments of the two great sacraments and the five lesser sacraments or all seven sacraments, no matter how you want to slice it, and we'll get into that later, um, that each one was associated and its power was associated with God's word and the spirit. Okay? And so this is why to this day, at the very least, if I only had a second, if Joan was gravely ill and I only had a second to administer Holy Communion, I wouldn't just come up and say, Body of Christ. Okay? Um, I, at the very least, come up and say, um, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that all who believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, the body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given for thee. So that it's connected to the power of God's word. Okay, um, It's magic. I mean, that's a bad word to use because it's not magic, it's grace. But the magic of the sacraments is derived from the power of the Spirit in God's Word. 
Okay, and so this was huge for me, and um, I hope it's huge for you that the, the there is a sacramental grace in Holy Scripture, a power to change hearts and to redeem lives, to deliver us from despair, to deliver us from the bondage of sin, to bring light, uh, to pierce the darkness, uh, etc. There is a power in God's Word. This is why it's essential. You are spiritually malnourished if you or if I are not reading God's Word every day and asking God to open our hearts to its power, and if we are not experiencing that kind of thing when we come to Mass. Remember, the first Mass after the resurrection, Jesus walks with Cleopas and probably Luke himself on the road to Emmaus, and he comes into their presence. The risen Lord becomes a present reality for them, although they do not at first recognize him. And he first, what he does is he opens, it says, the scriptures to them. Uh, And then he breaks bread with them, and they come to recognize him in the breaking of the bread. But they say later, in bearing witness, going back to being evangelicals, in bearing witness, they say, did not our hearts burn within us as he opened the scriptures to us? And then they bore testimony how they came to know him in the breaking of the bread, word and sacrament. And so it's very important for us to understand that there is power in God's word, that it is sacramental, okay? Even though evangelicals don't use that terminology, okay? If I could say one thing to the whole world, I think I would say, Catholics, you're not Catholic unless you're evangelical. Evangelicals, get a grip. You can't be a real evangelical unless you're Catholic. And that's what I'd like to scream to the world, okay? Uh, And so for those evangelicals that are listening, understand the Word of God as sacramental. It is a vehicle by which God conveys his presence, his power, his love, his grace, his healing, his deliverance, his truth, his joy, and whatever else I haven't said that's good uh, is delivered through the word of God. Okay. The primacy of Holy Scripture in the Anglican tradition. Okay. Um, John Jewell who was uh, a bishop uh, in the post-English Reformation, he may have authored with uh, others many of what came to be the 39 articles um, and uh, wrote this called An Apology of the Church of England, which almost was received uh, with... with, uh, was so well received, it was almost considered to be uh, uh, the, one of the Anglican formularies um, because it was so highly regarded. Um, so Jewel was a, a, a bishop, and, um, uh, and he wrote um, the Apology. And I'm going to give you some quotes from him because he gives us insight into the uh, early uh, post-English Reformation reformers uh, in what he says about... Scripture. So first, I just got to get to. It's in Roman numerals here. So let's see. This is looking pretty good. Thirty. Um, here is his intro from his introduction. He says, "We have searched out of the Holy Bible, which we are sure cannot deceive. So the Bible cannot deceive us. So we must hold to the Word of God. So we." We Anglicans, in this post-Reformation time, we have searched out of the Holy Bible, which we are sure cannot deceive, one sure form of religion, and have returned again unto the primitive church of the ancient fathers and apostles. So what's first? Scripture. And then return to the ancient tradition of the early church. 
uh, it's uh, in the Roman numeral, so in the introduction, uh, 37. So XXXVIII. Okay. Middle paragraph. Didn't you all bring your copy of the Apology of the Church of England? Okay. We, <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. I think I left mine in the grocery store. There you go. Very good, Bob. Blessed are you. No mere man has revealed this to you. We have searched out of the Holy Bible, which we are sure cannot deceive, one sure form of religion. There's only one uh, church to belong to, and that is the Catholic Church. And have returned again unto the primitive church. Of, now, primitive doesn't mean inferior. Primitive, early. Okay? The primitive church, patristic church, early church. Okay? The undivided church. And returned again unto the primitive church of the ancient fathers and apostles. That is to say, to the first ground and beginning of things, as unto the very foundations and headsprings of Christ's church. Okay, um, important quote there. Now I'm gonna we're gonna read this book later on in the course. By the way, um, the whole thing. We're now gonna I'm gonna go to page 17, Bob. Uh, page 17. This is regarding the primacy of Scripture in the Anglican tradition. Okay, He writes, Furthermore, if we do show it plain that God's holy gospel, the ancient bishops, and the primitive church do make on our side, and that we have not, without just cause, left these men, meaning the, the rest of the Western Catholic Church. They've separated themselves uh, from them now. And have rather returned to the apostles and old Catholic fathers. And if we shall be found to do the same, not colorably or craftily, but in good faith before God, in other words, not taking things out of context and so forth, by the way, this is what I read to the girls at night as they're falling asleep. But in good faith before God, truly, honestly, clearly, and plainly, and if they themselves, which fly our doctrine and would be called Catholics, should manifestly see how all these titles of antiquity, whereof they boast so much, are quite shaken out of their hands, and that there is more pith in this our cause than they thought for, we then hope and trust that none of them will be so negligent and careless of his own salvation, but he will at length study and bethink himself. I always want people to bethink themselves. And bethink himself to whether part he were best to join him. Undoubtedly, except one will altogether harden his heart and refuse to hear, he shall not repent him to give good heed to this our defense, and to mark well what we say and how truly and justly it agreeth with Christian religion. For where they call us heretics, it is a crime so heinous that unless it may be seen, unless it may be felt, and in manner may be holden with hands and fingers, it ought not lightly to be judged or believed when it is laid to charge of any Christian man. For heresy is a forsaking of salvation, a renouncing of God's grace, a departing from the body and spirit of Christ. But this was never an old and solemn property with them and their forefathers, on and on and on. Then later he says, uh, so do you see what, he, what he's saying? I, I hope you're following what he's saying, is that, look, we who are called the separatists, we who are called the heretics, we who are called the non-Catholics, we are the ones holding to Scripture and the true Catholic faith, that which is patristic and biblical. Okay, And that if people would simply listen to the arguments, if they're open to the truth of God's word and the faith of the undivided church, they would see that this is no new religion. This is rather a returning to the Catholic religion under the authority of God's word, the Bible. Okay. 
he goes on to uh, say also, um, nowadays, the Holy Scripture is abroad. The writings of the apostles and prophets are in print, whereby all truth and Catholic doctrine may be proved and all heresy may be disproved and confuted. I mean, that sounds like, well, of course, but that, that's huge back then. The fact that things were in the language that the people could read and understand and were being mass-produced, this was huge. This was huge. People who were earlier trying to translate the, the Latin Vulgate into English, how were they penalized? Killed. Death. Death for putting it into English. Okay. Um, um, yeah, Tinsdale, exactly. Um, 19, okay, uh, here, here's some more from, from him here in his Apology of the Church of England by John Jewell. Um, he's talking about the apostles and the prophets and so forth. He says, with this sword... Did Christ put off the devil? Meaning, what sword? what's the sword? Scripture, right. With this sword, did Christ put off the devil when he was tempted of him? With these weapons ought all presumption, which doth advance itself against God, to be overthrown and conquered. That is Scripture. How do you douse the fiery passions of temptation within yourself? Yeah, read scripture. Instead of saying, oh, I struggle so much with pornography, I think I'll turn on my computer. <laughs> Go and read the Bible, and you will find within a short time that it's much harder than it was before to then go and, and do it. Okay? Um, For all scripture, saith St. Paul, that cometh by the inspiration of God is profitable to teach, to confute, to instruct, to reprove, that the man of God may be perfect and thoroughly framed to every good work. Thus did the Holy Fathers always fight against the heretics. See how he's arguing? Well, first, remember, St. Paul said in the Bible, this is what Scripture is. Then what's he go to second? The Fathers of the ancient church. Thus did the Holy Fathers always fight against the heretics with none other force than that with of the Holy Scriptures. St. Augustine, when he disputed against Pelagius, uh, Pelagius uh, uh, no, I'm sorry, I assumed it was Pelagius, Petillion? Yeah, Petillion. Yeah. An heretic of the Donatists. Oh, a donut eater. Okay. Said, let not these words... Um, be heard between us, I say or you say. Let us rather speak in this wise. Thus, thus saith the Lord. There let us seek the church. There let us bolt at our cause. Likewise, St. Jerome, quote, All those things, saith he, which without the testimony of the scriptures are holden as delivered from the apostles, be thoroughly smitten down by the sword of God's word. St. Ambrose also, and he goes on and on and on uh, to, to, uh, to, uh, to say these things. In other words, today we say, well, I'm an Episcopalian because I believe, and someone says, oh, I left the Episcopal Church and became Anglican because I believe. Who cares? What we are to receive is what God has revealed I remember when I was first uh, going in the process for ordination and I met um, with a group uh, at the local level, the uh, parish level. And they said, uh, so Michael, tell us, um, what's, your, what's your faith about? Give us a, a statement of your faith. And I said, I said, I believe in one God. The no, Michael, Michael, my, not what the church teaches. What do you believe? Now, this will shock you. It was in the Episcopal Church. And, and I said, what do I believe? Yeah. Well, we believe in one God. That... No, Michael, use an I statement. I believe in God, the Father, the Almighty. <laughs> so, but you see, you see, that's really what it comes down to in this day is, well, I believe this. Well, I believe that. Well, I believe that. 
before you go off and say, I believe this, I believe that, go and find what God has revealed and allow your heart to be informed, you know, um, you know, before, before doing that. At least know what you're rejecting before you reject it, okay? Or what you're accepting before you accept it, okay? Um, 1920, uh, no, 30. Okay, let's see. We receive, this is John Jewell again, of course, page 30 at the first full paragraph. We receive and embrace all the canonical scriptures, both of the Old and New Testament, giving thanks to our God, who hath raised up unto us that light which we might ever have before our eyes, lest either by the subtlety of men or by the snares of the devil we should be carried away to errors and lies. Also, that these be the heavenly voices whereby God hath opened unto us his will, and that only in them man's heart can have settled rest, that in them be abundantly and fully comprehended all things, whatsoever be needful for our salvation. You see where that comes from? Every, you know, everything necessary for salvation. And then he goes on to say, as Origen, Augustine, Chrysostom, and Cyril have taught, that they be the very might and strength of God to attain salvation that they be the foundations of the prophets and apostles, whereupon is built the church of God, that they be the very sure and infallible rule, whereby may be tried whether the church doth strange or err, blah, blah, blah. So, so you see the principle that he's using? Scripture, then the fathers of the church, to make his argument. Okay, And what's his whole argument in here? We are the Bible Catholic Church, and you will be... Uh, reading that that text. Um, now, I'm just going to read you a couple of excerpts by Thomas Cramner. Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation. Okay? Um, and so, I want to read to you uh, uh, some of, just brief excerpts of his writings. Thomas Cramner was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation. Remember, if you remember anything, remember this. Henry VIII did not start a church. Okay? Henry VIII did not start a church. Okay? Um, the, uh, we have never claimed to be a new church. We were attempting, and still are, to return the Catholic Church in the realm of England and those in communion with her to the faith and order of the patristic church under the authority of Holy Scripture. In other words, we've never claimed to be a new church. We've never even claimed to be out of communion with the Church of Rome. We said that, look, they do not have jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm as they didn't for the first seven and a half centuries of Christian history. But we never declared ourselves out of communion with the Church of Rome. Okay, um, We've never claimed to have sacraments of our own, scriptures of our own, creeds of our own, councils of our own, or ministry of our own. We claim the faith, sacraments, scriptures, ministries, councils, creeds, worship, mass, etc., of the undivided Catholic Church under the authority of the Holy Scripture as God's Word written. Is that C-R-A-N-N-E-R, Cranmer? Yeah, Cranmer. Cranmer, C-R-A-N-M-E-R. Thomas Cranmer. And he was the editor of the Book of Common Prayer, all those great prose and you know in the in the prayer book tradition, um, uh, which I think is greatly lost in some of the contemporary uh, 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 expressions of the prayer book, but uh, was from Thomas Cranmer, who was martyred. By the way, he um, I'll tell you quickly. Um, um, 
So he, he uh, said, look, um, we're not starting a new church, but all we said is that a foreign prince, the Bishop of Rome, who was also a prince, does not have jurisdiction over the Catholic Church in this realm. Anyway, uh, when Mary came to the throne, she wanted to return the Catholic Church in that realm to place it underneath the jurisdiction of the Bishop of Rome again. And so he was in jail, and they, he, she jailed him, and he was given a chance to recant. So he recanted. Sorry. I believe in Rome. Nice guy. All right, and so he recanted. Then he thought better of it and said, ah, I'm, I'm wimping out. I need to stand up for what is truly Catholic, and what is truly Catholic is biblical, and I need, so he recanted his recantation. The penalty of which was, he lost his head. Yeah, no, he didn't lose his head. He was burned alive oh. at the stake. And um, they tied him to a post and tied his hands, but his hands weren't tied to him. His hands were like this. And so he was tied to the stake, his hands tied. And as the flames came near him, he put his hands into the fire and held them there, which I got to tell you, I don't think I could do. I can't even eat hot peppers. So, um, <laughs> there's no God but Allah. Don't give me another way. Uh, just kidding, by the way. <laughs> he put his hands in and said, let my hands be first to be purified. Because he had recanted. And, you know, uh, uh, he was a little too Protestant for me in his writings. But, uh, you know what, until I'm willing to die like that, I have nothing to say bad about the guy. So, uh, but anyway, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury at the time of the English Reformation. And here's uh, some excerpts uh, from, from him. Unto a Christian man... There can be nothing either more necessary or profitable than the knowledge of Holy Scripture. Now, knowledge of Holy Scripture, not just reading it, but knowing God's Word. Okay, The knowledge of Holy Scripture, scripture for as much as in it is contained God's true Word, setting forth His glory and also man's duty. And there is no truth nor doctrine necessary for our justification and everlasting salvation, but that is, or may be, drawn out of that fountain and well of truth. Therefore, as many as be desirous to enter into the right and perfect way unto God must apply their minds to no holy scripture, without the which they can neither sufficiently know God and his will, neither their office and duty." And as drink is pleasant to them that be dry, and meat to them that be hungry, so is the reading, hearing, searching, and studying of Holy Scripture to them that be desirous to know God or themselves and to do His will. And their, stomach, and their stomachs only do loathe and abhor the heavenly knowledge and food of God's Word that be so drowned in worldly vanities that they neither savor God nor any godliness. For that is the cause why they desire such vanities rather than the true knowledge of God. As they are sick of... An, uh, and so he goes on. I'll read you another uh, quote here. For in Holy Scripture is fully contained what we ought to do and what to eschew, eschew what to believe, what to love, and what to look for at God's hand at length. In those books we shall find the Father, from whom the Son, by whom, and the Holy Ghost, in whom, all things have their being and conservation. And these three persons to be but one God and one substance. In these books we may learn to know ourselves, how vile and miserable we be, and also to know God, how good he is of himself." and how he communicateth his goodness unto us and to all creatures. We may learn also in these books to know God's will and pleasure, 
as much as for this present time is convenient for us to know. Remember, we don't know all things. We know what God has chosen to reveal to us. We know what we need to know. Remember, my, my parent, your parents are, you know what you need to know. Well, that's what God says, you know. And then he says, and as the great clerk and godly preacher, St. John Chrysostom saith, whatsoever is required to salvation of man is fully contained in the scripture of God. He that is, so this is John Chrysostom saying this, in, 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 who lived in the 400. He that is ignorant may there learn and have knowledge. He that is hard-hearted and, obst- and, an, and an obstinate sinner shall there find eternal torments prepared of God's justice to make him afraid and to mollify him, to bring him back. He that is oppressed with misery in this world shall there find relief and the promises of eternal life and great consolation and comfort. So what is Cramner doing? First, he's arguing for Scripture from Scripture. And then secondly, he goes to the fathers of the church to back up the position of the Church of England, which is truly Catholic and biblical. We are the Bible Catholic Church. This is why I'm Anglican. When I was in the Roman seminary for two years, um, I studied and I fell in love with the early church. And I started to grow slowly in that more evangelical understanding of the power, the sacramental grace of Scripture. And in time, it came clear to me that there was only two choices, Eastern Orthodoxy or Anglicanism. And Anglicanism, to me, was even more clear about the place of Scripture in the Bible. And, you know, and so I'm an Anglican by choice because I truly believe that it is the Bible Catholic Church. But man... In places like Africa, Asia is the fastest growing church communion in the world. But in North America, it's dying on the vine. We need to get over ourselves and our disputes of evangelical versus Catholic and understand who we are. We are evangelical Catholics. And we need to let the world know that there is a church out there where we, you know, we run into a man in one of the restaurants that we frequent now in going out into the uh, um, neighborhoods, who told Deacon Bruce the other day, well, you know, I used to be a Catholic, he means Roman Catholic, but, you know, I got into Scripture in a small group in the Bible, so now I go to a faith Bible church, and, you know, I missed the sacraments, but I, I had to choose, and so here I am. And Bruce is like, I'm going to do it carefully now. <laughs> you don't have to choose! I got the church for you, you know? And people don't know this. They don't realize this, that there is a church that is evangelical and Catholic. And our our evangelical character is grounded in our Catholicity, but our Catholicity is grounded in the Word of God. And that this needs to be made made known. Um, Let me see, with... uh, the time I have left. We did Canon A5 of the Church of England. We did the preface to the ordinal. We did the quote from Lancelot Andrews, one canon, two testaments, three creeds, four councils, and a partridge and a pear tree. Uh, uh, we did what the 30... What's that? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, quoted John Jewell, Sacramental Grace. I, I, think, I think we're there. Um, I'm, I'm just going to read a couple of things from Scripture about Scripture, and then we'll take the last few minutes for questions or thoughts or comments or even disagreements, because the people who will be listening to this may say, you know what, I think he was a little wimpy on X, and I would want to challenge that, and I was glad that that person challenged uh, uh, Father McKinnon on that. Or they may say, hey, I had that question too, so you might be... Um, um, I, uh, for those listening, I just pretended to threaten them to uh, dare question me. So anyway, um, from Luke 24, I've already made reference to this. In beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them Cleopas and likely St. Luke, though the person isn't identified, to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Now it came to pass as Jesus sat at table with them that he took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they knew him, and he vanished from their sight. And they said to one another, Did not our heart burn within us as he talked with us on the road and while he opened the scriptures to us? There's that power of God's word. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of the bread. By the way, it's my favorite story. When I say story, I don't mean not true. Favorite story in all, all of Scripture is the road to a man. From John chapter 5, beginning at verse 37. And the Father who sent me, Jesus says, has himself borne witness to me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in him whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them that you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So he's talking to those who have heard him and have rejected him. Okay, John 17, beginning at 1b through 3, then 6 through 8, 14 to 19. Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee, since thou hast given him power over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom thou hast given him. And this is eternal life, that they know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have manifested thy name to the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me, and they have kept thy word. Now they know that everything that thou hast given me is from thee, for I have given them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them and know in truth that I came from thee. And they have believed that thou didst send me. I have given them thy word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not pray that thou shouldst take them out of the world. This is what I think of when we go into the French Hill neighborhood. But thou shouldst keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Thy word is truth. As thou didst send me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be consecrated in truth. So the word of God came to us from the Father to give us the word of God. That we may go into the world and proclaim the truth of God's word. From Romans 10, 13 to 17, For everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are men to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? And how can man, men preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes by the preaching of Christ. That is the word of God. And this is why we go into neighborhoods. This is why we have missions. And in fact, um, I think all of you here have one. I don't know if uh, Chris Lloyd has one. But here's your official archdeaconry in New England mug. And on the back... Yeah, well, that's true. But in the back of that mug is that scripture passage. Um, at least it's supposed to be. Is it? Okay, good. Praise God. <laughs> Do I hear an amen? <laughs> amen. Okay. Um, so uh, very important that we have to be sent. Um, uh, I also... We'd like to, uh, to cite 2 Corinthians 4, 1-6, Galatians 1, 6-9, Colossians 1, 21-23, Hebrews 4, 12, 
Hebrews 13, 7 to 9 and 17. I added verse 17 because it says to be nice to your priest so you'll be in big trouble with God. Look it up sometime. I like that one. Anyway, um, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 13 to 16, chapter 4, 3 to 4. I, I, I have three pages here and we don't have time. But of, of God's word saying, believe in the word. So how can you be a Catholic and not be biblical? But how can you be biblical and not belong to the one church of Christ? Right? And so, uh, anyway, here endeth the lesson for today. So now I'll open it up to comments, thoughts, questions, challenges. Anybody but Praveen. Yes. (laughs) Well, okay. At one point... um, uh, you mentioned how coming to the realization that uh, scripture is a sacrament it should be it should be handled as a sacrament sacramental was yeah very important to you and yeah. and I would just uh, just uh, add it is very important to you that 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 realization seems to be daily with uh, with the uh, preaching that I hear from you yeah. and today. Well, thanks be to God. And, and if that's true, it's not me, but the Word of God within me bubbling up. And, and that, that's evidence. If what you're saying is true, that's evidence that there is a power in God's Word. There's a power in God's Word. Joan. This, this may be a lame question, but you've, you've indicated several times that, that people in theological systems are not learning this stuff. Yes. Not being taught. Why is it? Uh, I, I mean, it, it, now it's a bit of an overstatement. You, you, you'll, you'll find a strong emphasis on scripture in, in one of the local seminaries, Gordon Conwell. Um, <clears throat> you probably won't necessarily find a strong understanding of ecclesiology or sacramental theology or church history or, or uh, the understanding of Catholicity that we discussed today. Um, you'll find something similar at the school uh, uh, where Bob wants to go next September and where Bruce, Deacon Bruce went to, Trinity in Ambridge, uh, Pennsylvania. <coughs> um, certainly at Neshota House Seminary where I did my uh, Masters of Sacred Theology. They teach all things properly. Uh, and, uh, but in, in general, uh, in general, um, the, you, you, you learn a lot of theory and whatever book the pr- professor is working on now and, and uh, uh, a lot of challenges to the A, Bs, and Cs without being taught the rebuttals, by the way, uh, how to rebut such things. But you, very, uh, very little uh, of, of, of this, if any, is, 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 is taught. Well, I, I, I think that the institutions uh, have been taken over by uh, hippies from the 60s. This is not what they're into, you know? And, uh, um, uh, but, um, I mean, I can understand that in some places, like Andover Newton. Yeah. But, yeah. I, I just don't get it. Mm hmm. I, I, you know, I, I would say that sadly, a lot of people, even a lot of bishops in Orthodox Anglicanism, if you said, uh, for example, oh, well, Archdeacon Michael is, is very Catholic, they would think that means that I lean towards uh, the doctrines and teachings of, of Roman Catholicism. And a true Anglican Catholic is a patristic Catholic under Scripture, not a, a Roman Catholic in Anglican clothing, you know. But there was other seminaries on the more evangelical side that would probably their theology would be closer to being a Southern Baptist than than classical Anglicanism, and so this is why you know I'm offering courses like this because I think it's not only important for uh, clergy that are ordained like Deacon Susie or those who are seeking orders like uh, Chris and and Bob, but even our lay leaders and people sitting in the pews to know who we are, where we've come from, and uh, how these words aren't uh, incompatible with one another, but are actually uh, compatible. And, uh, but unfortunately, you just don't get this. Chris, uh, you just recently finished seminary. Do you want to address the question a- at all? 
That would be great. Well, I mean, one of the things that I was thinking about as you we were, we were talking is I think one of the values of going to a seminary like Gordon Conwell, like mm-hmm. I did, um, um, is that um, you, you get a, a real varied, real varied perspective, depending on the professor, depending on the student you're talking to in the lunchroom. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that there's, I think that there's, there's, there's value in that, um, um, in having that, that, that kind of really, really eclectic kind of, you know, you have a wide range of theology, a wide range of beliefs and things, but you're there for the same purpose. And you keep the main thing, the main thing, mm-hmm. really. Um, and, and that is to study God's word and, 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 and to really dive into, into that together as, as the body. And so um, um, I really see value in that. Um, but as, as for specifically to your question, I mean, I think, I think that, um, um, I mean, it, I, I guess I would respond to that by saying that, that um, it, it is a detriment in, in, in a lot of ways. Um, to places like Gordon Conwell that are so eclectic in their in, in, in the theologies that are presented there, um, that that stuff like this isn't taught. Um, but I think that it, like like as Father Michael said, that if you're looking for specifically for to go to a place or to, to be in a school or an environment where this is put forth, that a place like Neshota House, where you're not as kind of scattered in theology, uh, is 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 a better. Kind of location for that, so I don't know if that does justice mm-hmm. to to what you're thanks a lot what you're what you're asking. But but for me, I mean, I enjoyed I enjoy kind of being surrounded by by this and kind of thinking through the Did issues. Did you go in the front door as an Anglican? I went in the front door as an Episcopalian. Ah, mm-hmm. so they must be doing something right. <laughs> <laughs> Where I did my MDiv. It, um, uh, you know, they they were into a lot of theory and applying principles, what but do you mean by theory? like the principles and theories of Calvin, and how would you apply that to things today or in our thinking? And but no one really hammers out the overall picture of things. You know, for so for example, they might say, okay, well, yes, the Jews. Uh, you know, had these Ten Commandments, but thou shall not, you know, commit adultery. Well, and they would teach you the part about the fact that in that culture, if someone had relations with your wife, then she was considered damaged property, and it was insulting, you know, to you, and then you wouldn't want to be with her. And so, you know, this was put in there really, uh, you know, to protect women as property. So you hear that part of it. What you don't hear then is, while some of that is true in that culture, that was their understanding, God had a fuller understanding from the beginning. And God revealed that particular commandment and helped us as his people to grow in its understanding and its application. It wasn't an innovation. It was a fuller understanding of what God has revealed. And that really this is a faithfulness in covenant between a husband and a wife and, not, you know, and so forth and so on. So, but they don't tell you that second part. So you start thinking, oh, well, so the commandments are not from God. They were just written by the Jews because they wanted to protect their property. You know, and so, it, you, you know, if you can come out of seminary still believing in, in anything, it's a, that's a miracle right there, I think. So. Even someplace like Gordon Conwell? No, no, that would be, a, you wouldn't get this stuff, but you would get the scripture part of it. And again, that goes to the, uh, the idea is that you, you have some, you know, good seminaries that are more charismatic or more evangelical or more Catholic, but it's hard to get them all together, you know, and, and that kind of thing. I mean, this is a stereotype, but when I was in the Diocese of Quincy, I was on the Commission on Ministry, and we'd get people in from, uh, who wanted to be ordained from Trinity School and of ministry where Deacon Bruce went. And I'd say something like, or someone around the table would say, um, so uh, uh, why evangelize? Oh, because Jesus Christ, you know, is the love of God the Father. He's coming to the world. We want to bring people to Jesus. You know, they go, oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. So now, um, how do you think we could uh, teach people the definition of the Council of, of Chalcedon, the Fourth Ecumenical Council today. The what? Huh? Okay. Then we'd have people come in from Neshoda 
Oh, I'd like to be a priest. Oh, okay. So, how do you think uh, the definition of, of the one person of Christ and two natures from Chalcedon is applicable? Oh, well, this is so important because so many people these days, and they could articulate all of that. Well, why evangelize? Uh, Jesus said we should, right? You know, and it was like someone needs to get their chocolate and their peanut butter, you know what I mean? And bring Trinity and Neshota together. And I think there's been a movement since I've been there to really kind of do that so that Neshota, and again, this is stereotyping. There'd be those who would defend both institutions against what I'm saying. But I think that under Dean Monday, Neshota became much more evangelical. And I think that uh, from what Bruce has told me, that Trinity has become somewhat more Catholic as well in its patristic teaching and, and so forth and so on. But really, it's uh, you go to you know Yale, Princeton, Harvard, Brown, you know, et cetera, et cetera, and you're just going to get this you know theory stuff, and you know you're the you know you're that way because you know you love your mother and all this other stuff. So. <laughs> All right, well, thank you very much, and God bless you, and uh, what's that? Well, I, I hope so, and we will have part two, believe it or not, of the Holy Scripture part, because there's a whole other section. Uh, how does Roman Catholicism teach differently? What's the position of this in Eastern Orthodoxy? Um, let me uh, tempt you here, uh, what else, um, the, the teaching magisteriums. What's Sola Scriptura? Uh, mean versus the primacy of, of Holy Scripture. Um, when someone says, well, well, wait a minute, you guys say that, uh, you know, people shouldn't have sex outside of marriage. What about the fact that it also says in the Old Testament X, Y, and Z? And people go, oh, gee, I don't know how to answer that. And so we're going to talk about the, the answer of that, the particular law of the Jews and the moral laws for, of the Jews. The development of doctrine versus the development of faith. Um, uh, the, uh, theories of scriptural interpretation. So lots of stuff. So, uh, so we'll see you on December 10th.